You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Kids today, I tell you, if you're old enough to remember when we used to say never trust anyone over 30, you're old enough to have some perspective on how the generational conflict works from both sides. There was general generational conflict before, during, and after the Civil War as well, and today we're going to look at the young Virginians who urged secession, served in Lee's army, and led the post-war South. Join me for a conversation with Peter S. Carmichael, author of The Last Generation, Young Virginians in Peace, War, and Reunion, on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich. I'm coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in rainy Greenville, North Carolina, February 2007. Uh, But speaking, as always, just for myself, and my guest will do the same, neither of us taking any responsibility for the various North Carolina universities uh, we might be involved in in any way. Uh, They're purely on their own for the next hour. As always, also, thank you for everyone who has contributed. Uh, Thanks in particular to uh, John Lagos of Massachusetts for a generous donation to Civil War Talk Radio. It keeps the books flowing in and uh, keeps the the sound going out. Not tax-deductible. It's just for my personal benefit. I could actually spend it on chocolate bonbons if I wanted to, Uh, but appreciated nonetheless. And also, uh, this week, congratulations to uh, Wide Awake Films and Kevin Worley, uh, who was on the show uh, last year, for uh, an email he sent announcing that they won a regional Emmy Award for their documentary film on the Battle of Franklin, which I can say is a very interesting combination of photography and uh, reenactment images. And if you want to find out the story behind it, uh, go back to the archives and listen to our show with... Uh, the principal from Wide Awake Films, Rob Hodge, the uh, noted reenactor, the uh, cover model for Confederates in the Attic, is also involved with that outfit, so they have a a very sound pedigree. Well, our guest today 
is Peter Carmichael joining us um, perhaps from his office uh, as well. Peter, are you there? I am. I'm actually at home. Oh, My home office. <laughs> good place to be on a, a cold and rainy Friday here. It's the first uh, weekend of February and all of America prepares for the great sports event, which in our neck of the woods means it's the actual uh, the annual uh, youth soccer tournament in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, other people are paying attention to the Super Bowl, but I'm worried about my 12-year-old girls' team. Well, I'm a, a long-suffering Colts fan, so uh, this Sunday means a great deal to me. Well, it means everything well, to me. <laughs> well, well, good luck very much. Um, it's all, since many people listen to this after uh, it's been recorded, they'll already know the outcome of the game, so we shouldn't say anything to make ourselves foolish. I <laughs> sort of like the Bears. I lived in Chicago once, but... Uh, uh, the Colts are an old-time NFL team, and I could pull for them, too. And Peyton Manning, uh, as I think many know, uh, that's a family name, and named after, of course, the Peyton Manning who served on James Longstreet's staff. Is that right? Yes, no, I, I was unaware of that. Very good. Yeah. Well, I am very glad you could be on the show today, um, uh, and and I will... Thank you publicly for doing so at short notice. Uh, originally, uh, we had another guest, uh, Al Nofi, was scheduled to be on, and his mother had uh, heart surgery this week, and he had to uh, cancel uh, at a late date. I'm happy to report he said she was doing well, uh, but uh, it was very gracious, gracious of you to be able to come in uh, so quickly. Uh, but, of course, no good deed goes unpunished, and that means that I haven't fully read the book, so I'm going to play the uh, undergraduate role today, ask you questions about a book that I've only skimmed uh, more lightly than I should. But before that, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your interest in the war, your background. What got you interested in this subject? Um, well, I grew up in Indiana, and my mother uh, took me to history sites uh, from an early age, and my first battlefield was, I was three years old, and of course I, I don't remember that at all, but I do remember Gettysburg when I was six. And uh, from that point, I just uh, read everything I possibly could about the Civil War, and all of our summer trips were geared toward history matters. And uh, so I just, just always had this just deep interest in the Civil War. And it was furthered a little bit along the way. I was a reenactor for a few years uh, when I was in junior high. I was a drummer boy because, of course, as a as a teenager, their your peers aren't particularly interested in the Civil War. No. And I thought, as a reenactor, I might find other people who were interested and did. And then, when I got just out of high school, I got my first job in the National Park Service, working at Appomattox Courthouse. And uh, so, I a good part of my career actually has been devoted to being a public historian. I, my interest was sparked by, uh, by historical sites, and then I really got my, uh, got my start working at the battlefields and enjoyed it immensely. Well, you know, I was looking at, at uh, some of your work, and I happened to, uh, I was at the library and, and pulled out a copy of your biography of uh, William Pegram, uh, Lee's young artillerist. And you wrote that some, uh, more than ten years ago. I, I did. I um, on one of my first trips to to Virginia, I stopped at Five Forks before it was a National Park Service site, and uh, it's just a very evocative place. It's one of the, I think it was one of the few battlefields I'd I'd ever been to up to that point that 
wasn't littered with monuments and markers, and so uh, your imagination could go wild. And when I got back to Indiana, I picked up a copy of Lee's Lieutenants and his chapter, uh, Pegram Pickett, I think it's called a final contrast or a closing contrast. It is uh, just a wonderful chapter, and it was a teaser about Pegram, about who this young man was and who who died or was mortally wounded at Five Forks. And so it was this very poignant story about his last day, uh, but it was a story that, of course, uh, hadn't been told. And so when I was working in the National Park Service, Ron Wilson, the former chief historian at Appomattox, suggested that I go to the Virginia Historical Society in Richmond to see what I could find on Willie Pegram. And I drove out there. You know, this was long before the Internet. You couldn't look at the collections online. I was just going out there just to see what they would have. And, in fact, they had a gold mine, a wonderful collection of Pegram's wartime correspondence. And that began, I was 19 when I started to develop my interest in Pegram. And then when I arrived at graduate school at Penn State University to study under Gary Gallagher, uh, that's when I worked on, on the biography, and it was my master's thesis. And the University of Virginia then published it before I had finished my, my Ph.D. But I, I was very fortunate because I had a mentor who spent an inordinate amount of time with me in uh, getting that manuscript polished and, and ready for publication. Well, it, it, the, the unaware would look at it and say, well, this must be the dissertation. This is a fine piece of work here. And uh, so when I was looking at uh, The Last Generation, saw the reference that that had been the dissertation, it made me double-take and go back and say, wow, this guy's got a book before his book. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it, it, well, you know, it was just, it, it was the right situation for me to be able to do that. And it really, it, it was the kind of people that I worked with at Penn State that made it possible. And it was, the master thesis on Pegram is what led me to the book, The Last Generation, because Pegram's views about the Confederacy, his commitment and his, his loyalty uh, were so extreme. Um, and it really stood in sharp contrast to what scholars at the time, and we're talking now about the, the, the mid-'80s, what scholars at the time were saying about the Confederacy, a Confederacy, a confederacy that uh, was so ridden by class conflict, by guilt over slavery, uh, that there wasn't this strong sense of nationalism that held white Southerners together. And so in reading Pegram's letters and in looking at his actions during the course of the war, uh, he seemed uh, exceptional to me. And I wondered, of course, if Pegram, how he reflected other members of his age group. Was he, in fact, a zealot? Was he sort of on the periphery? Uh, but what I discovered and then working on my dissertation, which became The Last Generation, I discovered that, in fact, for his age group, Pegram was very much mainstream. So well, let's talk about this, this generation. Um... Uh, as I said, I'll play the role of the undergraduate who is assigned the book and just skims it before class. Um, <laughs> but having years of practice at that, we'll, we'll see how right. I do. I mean, that's all we do. I mean, I don't think I've ever actually read a book since graduate school. In graduate school, they train you to skim. That, that is that is really true. I, I'm interested to hear that because it, it, I have many books that I have halfway or three-quarters read and, and whipped through and then on to the next. Uh, we read a lot of reviews. We know what people right, are saying. Right, right. But, uh, uh, and and uh, there's an excellent one by uh, Richard DiNardo, the uh, Marine Corps, uh, I was right. just reading today, of, of The Last Generation, a very, very positive review. Um, well, the, uh, the the title of The Last Generation, The Young Virginians, um, 
the young Virginians, isn't that what uh, Osama bin Laden is expecting to find in, in the afterlife, or, or is that something altogether different? <laughs> it's something a little different, I think. Okay, okay, there, there's my bad joke for the year. Um, why the last generation? Uh, uh, they're not literally the last. What's right, they're they, they not. These are the, the last men to grow up with the institution of slavery. So these young people spent their formative years or became political beings in the 1850s. And they would go on to serve as secondary officers, mostly in Lee's army during the Civil War, and then during Reconstruction, uh, when they were in their late 20s and into their early 30s, uh, they assumed positions of responsibility and authority uh, within Virginia. Uh, But what's critical about this cohort of young people is that 1850 period where they coalesced as an age group and I think shared a similar perspective on on a number of issues, but to, to really, I think, understand the last generation, why they're important, I'll just take one individual, a man named William Ronaylet, who served as an officer in Pickett's division. Uh, after the Civil War, he led a contingent, in fact, the very first contingent, uh, to a reunion with Pickett's division and the Philadelphia Brigade. And there, William Ronaylet stood in front of an audience that contained correspondence from across the country. And there he told that audience that, in fact, that the South wanted to bury the past, that they wanted to forget about the war, and that, in fact, Southerners weren't even interested in the return of their own battle flags. And then at the end of this stirring speech, he pointed to one of his former comrades who stood up and waved an American flag. Now, this is the very same William Ronaylet who, during the Civil War, in fact, after Gettysburg, received a letter from his wife a letter that informed him about the destruction of his plantation outside Richmond. Aylett was so incensed after reading this letter that he'd lined up a group of Union soldiers and he ordered his subordinates to shoot them on the spot. Thankfully, he was talked out of doing that. He then wrote back to his wife, and in this letter he wrote to his wife that, in fact, there was a just God, that that God would send a lightning bolt and it would essentially exterminate the Yankee race. And then in the 1850s, William Rohn Aylett joined a Southern Rights Association when he was a student at the University of Virginia. So it's an incredible journey from 1850s, Southern Rights extremists, Civil War, a Confederate zealot. But then in the post-war years, here's a man who offers and believes in reconciliation. And so it's, it's a remarkable journey. It is a journey that, or a trajectory that, most young people of his generation followed. And I think it's one that demanded explanation because it speaks to some really big, important issues about the Civil War. How did these white Southerners make that transition from an Old South, an Old South that was based upon the institution of slavery, to a post-Civil War world that's based upon free labor capitalism? And that's that's really what holds, I think, this book together, and I think it's the big question that the book addresses. Well, let's probe into some of the, the bases of that question then. Um, how, first of all, how homogenous is this group, or how representative uh, are, are figures uh, right. like, like Pegram or, or uh, Ayla? Right. I, I think that, to, to, to be Perfectly honest, I think that's one of the, the problems with the book, is that when you speak of a generation, a generation should reflect all socioeconomic classes. It should have racial diversity as well. And, in fact, when I speak of the last generation, I am 
really speaking about those men who were either a part of or closely aligned to the slaveholding elite. It is, as I'm sure many of your viewers or listeners know, it's very difficult to hear from non-slaveholders. They simply don't leave uh, the evidence, the, the written evidence, to be able to get into their intellectual worlds. I did, however, find the writings of one man who was a non-slaveholder. So the, the cohort, how I have put it together, in terms of a statistician would, in fact, be just disgusted by what I've done because what I've done is really just grabbed wherever I could a letter, a diary, a speech, a published article from any one of those young men who came of age in the 1850s. Some might say that this is a very narrow, limited slice of Virginia society. Uh, I disagree with that. I think that from this age group, you really not just understand young people coming of age in Virginia, but I think you get some insights into the problems and the issues that young people throughout the South confronted. It doesn't mean that they had the same answers that young Virginians had, but they clearly confronted the same questions. Well, as a matter of historical technique, if you're going for whatever evidence you can find on a given group, like as you describe, um, you you run the risk, if anyone runs the risk of of finding what they're looking for, if you see what I'm saying. If you you say, okay, I'm going to take all the letters from all the uh, adult males in uh, a certain county, then you know, some will agree and some will disagree. You have sort of a control. If you just say, I'm looking for anyone, anything I find in this age group, whether it's letters or articles, uh, will you find yourself just looking for letters and articles that support what, what you want them to say? Right. And I think that what you point out is the problem that all historians confront, and I think that you probably agree with this. Unfortunately, too many of our peers, <laughs> they just go to where the evidence supports their preordained conclusions. And, and I'd like to believe that I didn't do that, and I know, in fact, I know I didn't do that because when I entered this project, I looked at Willie Pegram, and I had some sense of how his peers felt, but I just automatically assumed that Pegram's Confederate devotion, his his extreme loyalty, was just, and it's a key word here, a natural progression from his support of secession, a natural progression from growing up in the 1850s when there was sectional discord, when Southern intellectuals and ministers and teachers, when they were proclaiming the uniqueness of the South. So I thought that Pegram, like his peers, their, their devotion to the Confederacy was just a natural consequence of coming of age in the 1850s. But when I looked at the 1850s, I found something that was strikingly different. I found that, in fact, that their as a group, their commitment to the idea of a South, their feeling of being Southern, that it, in fact, was extraordinarily fluid, and that these men in the 1850s considered themselves devoted sons of the Union. So it, it, when I got into the source material, it completely threw me off track. It wasn't what I expected. I expected really a simpler, easier story to tell, uh, but that's not the story that, that, that I, I ultimately recovered. So, so these men are not fire eaters as a whole. They're not leading the charge towards secession throughout the they, 1850s. The, the, yes and no. Ultimately, they do in Virginia. Mm-hmm. As 
as many, and I think the scholarship is, is unified on this point, Virginia, when it came to the question of secession, was in fact conservative. There was strong unionist sentiment. It was, it was conditional, but strong unionist sentiment in the state even after Lincoln's election. There was a belief among particularly older Virginians that some compromise, in fact, could be reached and that Virginia could somehow manage to stay in the union. But what's striking is that young people, they in fact stood in opposition to this position. It didn't matter if they were Democrats or Whigs. They in fact came together as soon as Lincoln was elected. And they agitated, engaged in political action to try to push Virginia out of the Union. And they did so by raising Confederate flags on Virginia campuses, engaging in all kinds of political protest. But protest that was dismissed by their elders. Their elders dismissed them as being childish. Raising the Confederate flag at the University of Virginia, the Richmond Papers basically said this is the immature act of... of so, um, so they're on. So they were. They were, in fact, secessionists, uh, but they weren't fire eaters before Lincoln's election. They didn't gather in the 1850s and set up committees of correspondence with other Southern universities and try to speak, try to rally people to the cause of Southern radicalism. They, they did not do that at all. Peter, but, we're going to take a short break sure. here and come back in a minute uh, and find out more about what these men did to cause the session and what they did afterwards. Good. We'll be That's back okay. in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. into secession, what did they do when the war began? We're talking with Peter S. Carmichael about the last generation, young Virginians in peace, war, and reunion on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter S. Carmichael, author of The Last Generation, Young Virginians in Peace, War, and Reunion. In our first segment, we talked about this group of young men who came of age before the Civil War in Virginia and we're discussing the role they played in uh, 
in, in getting the war underway and in, in, uh, uh, urging secession. And Peter, you suggested that these uh, young men were not, as a cohort, were not avid secessionists necessarily. Some were, some were not, until uh, Lincoln's election in 1860, and then you have a real uh, uh, gathering of enthusiasm on their part. Did they respond likewise when the war began? Did they uh, enlist uh, as, as a body? They did. They did in overwhelming numbers. And I, I think that to, before we talk about their war experience, I think one other important thing to consider about their their advocacy for secession, that again, how I approached this topic initially, I thought, well, there's this, this sense of southernness, the sense of being southern. That's what animated them. That's what drove them to support secession. But in looking at the experience of the last generation, that we can see that this feeling of cultural oneness isn't what motivates people to go off to war. It, in fact, took a political issue, the election of Abraham Lincoln and what the Republican Party represented in the eyes of the last generation. It was that that allowed these young people to coalesce, to come together, and to engage in supporting secession. So I think, again, in thinking about this group of young people and how we can connect it to some bigger and broader issues, we can see that this cultural oneness, cultural identity, it's an important issue, but it becomes really important when we connect it to the political framework. And when we see the political framework of the 1850s and the 1860s, we can understand what, what really motivated them. And, and, and yes, when the, when the war began in, in large numbers, they entered Confederate service, Again, no surprise there. These are men who had a great deal at stake. These are men who are part of or closely aligned to the slaveholding class. Uh, they knew uh, what was at risk with a war against a Republican-led uh, administration. And they took on a very important, I think, position in the Confederate Army as secondary officers because it was up to these young men to earn the consent of the ordinary buck private in the Confederate Army on a day-to-day basis the men of the last generation as secondary officers, they had to get those men uh, in the rank and file uh, to be dutiful, to be obedient, and that was not an easy task at all. The, uh, so they have to earn their, their position of leadership in, in terms of the, the rank and file. What about, um, in, in the eyes of the, the older generation, you, you, uh, the argument about, of status anxiety for a generation is one that... You can find in other other generations, other historians have talked about this as a almost a classic explanation of important right. change. Right. Uh, and certainly, uh, you, you reference that here that, that this generation, before the war, and I guess to some extent during the war, senses that they they need to to establish their own niche. They do, and Jerry, I think you bring out what's a really good point that a generational approach. It can, if you're not careful, it can lead to sort of predetermined conclusions uh, because you can find anxiety in every generation. Mm-hmm. So there doesn't seem to be anything really exceptional about their experience. The generational approach offers these sort of universal explanations. And as a historian, I think that's something that we should resist against. Universal explanations, whether it's generational, whether it's race, whether it's gender or class, just aren't very sophisticated. And with these young people, that anxiety that they had, 
is best understood in looking specifically at the context of the 1850s. It was a time in which there were market intrusions into Virginia. It was a time when slavery was adapting to new economic realities. And it was a time for young people who didn't believe, and I think that they were largely correct, that, that the traditional path to respectability, to prestige, through land ownership and slavery, wasn't really open to them anymore. So there is personal frustration and unease. There's a perception that Virginia as a state was on the decline. There's the fear of radicalism in the form of abolition up north. And there's the belief that there's a leadership within the state of Virginia that in fact had sacrificed the state, that had not kept up with what they called the progressive reforms of the day. Bringing all that stuff together, all that together helps explain their support for secession and their support for the Confederacy. It's not an easy explanation. It is a very complicated one. And so your question is a good one because it's what we should always search for for historians, how we should, we should always find ways to complicate our answers and, and not offer sort of easy explanations. Well, let me, let me see if I can muddy things further, and I, I apologize if you address this at length in the book. Um, Robert Johansson makes an argument that the generation that fights the Civil War feels a, uh, a, a loss of manliness um, because they, they didn't fight a war, uh, in this case the Mexican War, as their parents right. did. Right. And, you know, Theodore Roosevelt's generation will feel... Uh, sissified because they didn't fight uh, the Civil War. Do your young Virginians ha- have a uh, a manliness issue? Uh? issue. <laughs> and you know, yes, they do. And I, I'm a, a little guarded in saying that because it's just the kind of thing that academics throw out there. And I think to a, a, a listening or reading public, they think, oh my God, here's academics going at it again. <laughs> over-intellectualizing something that doesn't need to be over-intellectualized. But, in fact, the construction of gender ideas um, mattered a great deal to these young people who, when they lobbied for secession and the dismissal of those political acts by the older generation, it was a challenge. It It was a threat to their sense of being men. And so you find that when these men enlisted in the Confederate Army, they saw war as an opportunity to to prove their manhood. Now, is that to say that all these young people went off to enlist just because they had a lot of testosterone in them and they wanted to prove themselves on the battlefield? No. It's a horrible simplification. But, again, what's important is to see that secession, formation of the Confederacy, joining the Confederate Army, that is a point of convergence for these young men and for Southerners and Northerners alike. And it is a convergence of personal, private issues about what it means to be a man. It is a convergence with political, larger political issues about who's going to rule this country, Republicans, or that in fact threatens a slaveholding society. And it's also a convergence with issues that involve the state of Virginia. And I think that that's something that my book brings it shows how all those forces come come together. What, um, without going down the path into gender issues much further, um, what about the women of this generation? Uh, I, on the one hand, historically, they're not as as uh, easy to, to to recapture, obviously, as the men. 
right. in terms uh, of, they are. of well, letters. I, I, think that, I think the one thing about, and that's one thing I tried to do with, with the study group, is that I, I wanted very much to contextualize their lives, not just what they did with other men, what they did in the Army, what they did in the universities, but the relationships they had with their wives, their girlfriends, and their mothers. And these women played a decisive role in defining the idea of what's called a Christian gentleman. Uh, they implored young men when they would go off to college to, to live respectable lives because until the 1850s, uh, the reputation of American universities was incredibly low, distressingly low, uh, particularly in the South. Most people thought that you sent a kid off to college and that they would drink and fight and they wouldn't learn a thing. And there were, at, at the University of Virginia, a number of riots, protests that the students had engaged in prior to 1850. But after 1850, you see, and it's striking, not just at the University of Virginia, but across Virginia and across the South, a return to religion. And it was this idea to try to become a good Christian gentleman. Now, did all young men live up to that idea? Of course not. But what's critical is that women played a very important role in shaping that idea. And it went beyond just being pious. It meant to be educated. It also meant that you were to go off and have to be a professional. It's extremely modern. So our notions of southern manhood are often shaped by Gone with the Wind. The grand cavalier who sits up on his veranda, drinks his mint julep, and has a very relaxed, aristocratic lifestyle. That is not the idea that these young Virginians, and I believe most young southerners, had on the eve of the Civil War. They were very forward-looking, very modern, very professional, and they believed in education, discipline, sobriety, and they got all that mostly from women. There is a, a fantastic book uh, from a fellow Carolinian historian, Stephen Barry, uh, who wrote a book called All That Makes the Man. It is one of the most important books I think anyone can read on Southern manliness and on the soldier experience. Uh, the book didn't get as much play as it deserved, I think, but it's a fantastic book, All That Makes the Man by Stephen Barry. And I think he really does a nice job with talking about the role of women or the influence of women on Southern men. Well, I'll definitely have to look at that and uh, uh, definitely look into that book. The um, Boy, there are so many directions to, to go here. I'm at a loss uh, for which to choose. This generation goes into the war then with with a strong sense of, of forward looking, of progress, of modernity, not trying to recapture um, uh, an old leisure, leisurely aristocratic lifestyle. As soldiers, then, um, on the one hand, their, their devotion to the South uh, could lead this to be an alternate explanation for for the. Uh, impetuous bravery that, that we see. Maybe we can replace McQuinney's uh, cracker thesis, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the Celtic uh, thesis with, with a uh, uh, young man in a hurry thesis. <laughs> Is that what's happening here? Well, I think that in part what does drive uh, that that courage, that recklessness on the battlefield is in part this ambition, and I think Stephen Berry does a really nice job with that, this desire for acclaim, and at, at the heart of what all Southern men desired was reputation, and that is very much about public acceptance. And to go back to the classic, and I think it is, it is, uh, it is still an amazing book, it's Bertram Wyatt Brown's Southern Honor. 
I mean, we talk about, particularly in the Civil War world, we talk about Southern honor all the time, uh, but I suspect most people haven't really read anything about it. And I think Wyatt Brown's book about Southern honor, which really talks about the, the pressure, the demands that honor placed upon individuals to get public acclaim, to get community acceptance, to get reputation, all that figured very strongly within these young men. But these young men, their devotion to the Confederate cause was political action. You know, that's something I take a lot of people around battlefields. And often people say, look, when you get to a battlefield, let's just talk about the troop movements and nothing else. That's what a battlefield is for. It's a chessboard, and let's try to just figure out the movements. I understand that. I appreciate that, and I'm interested in it. But what a battlefield to me also is, it is the site where you see the most extreme form of political action. So the, the courage that was displayed by Pickett's division on July 3rd at Gettysburg, did those men, before they made that charge, say, come on, let's do this one for slavery? Of course not, and no one's suggesting that. But what we see is the, the outcome of these very intense ideological discussions that these men had. And that, that devotion that we see on the battlefield is a reflection or a, uh, of a deep commitment to an idea. And, uh, and so I think it's important that when we look at the displays of valor, and, and, and the young men of the last generation were legendary for it, I mean, this is, we're talking about Jeb Stewart as part of this, Sandy Pendleton, Willie Pegram. I mean, these are men who earn reputations throughout the Confederacy for their bravery. We shouldn't just look at those actions on the battlefield in isolation. We should see them as the consequence of their worldview. Now, this is a, a view that's gained traction in the last uh, five or ten years. Uh, certainly, James McPherson, and, and for causes and comrades, argues this. Um, Chandra Manning, who will be on the show uh, next week or the week, I think next week, uh, has a book coming out that argues uh, very much that there's a strong political motivation. Right. But it runs counter to a sort of traditional view that uh, the soldiers were essentially apolitical and what motivates the soldier uh, to be brave ultimately is, is the buddy system, is, is the primary group of friends. And he's really fighting for the guy next to him. Right. All for the regiment, right? Well, precisely. Uh, um, right. And I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think that what you point out, though, is what is a real problem within the historiography for Civil War soldiers, is that the ideological camp led by McPherson, I think the work is fantastic, and I, I draw heavily from it. I think that, unfortunately, that work is so far removed from the lived reality, the daily struggles of survival that soldiers in, engaged in. And so what we have from the ideological camp is that we have selected quotes that support generalizations. And it's a very snapshot approach. And I don't think that it is a very realistic or a very authentic view of the soldier experience. But then we have the old guard who just sort of denies that, in fact, that these men were thinking soldiers. And so what we really need in soldier studies, and this is what I'm, I'm trying to do with my next book, is to bring those two things back together. We need the Bell Wiley work, the Bell Wiley work which was outstanding in getting to the material reality that soldiers lived in. And, and these, those books, the Wiley books are great reads, but they're really quite sophisticated. So if we can really draw from the material reality 
really understand that and how it constantly changed and connect that to the ideology of these men, I think we'll get a more holistic look at the soldier experience. I think that's a a strong point, and and, uh, I don't want to give the misimpression that that, uh, my view uh, as expressing all for the regiment is that it was just just for the the regiment or the company or, or the guy next to you in line, but... Uh, but that ideology certainly is a major component. We'll take another break on this point. Uh, we'll come back in just a moment more with Peter S. Carmichael on Civil War Talk Radio. They gave everything they had, but they lost the war. What was next in store for the last generation? We'll find out from Peter S. Carmichael on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Carmichael, author of The Last Generation, Young Virginians in Peace, War, and Reunion. We've been talking about what motivated these young men to fight the ideological, the cultural, the political, the social, uh, the individual psychological reasons, all uh, as in any complex decision mixing together to produce, uh, in this case, a very dramatic result. Um, Peter, I wanted to ask you, uh, well, many things here, uh, but let's, let's push ahead toward the end of the war. These soldiers who served in Lee's army, uh, who were from the social and economic elite, uh, who rose to officer rank, uh, not the highest level necessarily, but uh, the the junior officers, the field officers. Um, After the war, uh, everything they've been committed to is is gone with the wind. What what happens next? Um, The source material for the immediate post-war period is is dangerously thin. But for the few surviving accounts, uh, it is one of of complete loss. I can think of a a young man named John Hampton Chamberlain uh, who attended the University of Virginia, who was from Richmond. He accompanied Lee's army to Appomattox when he had heard rumors that Lee was going or intended to surrender. He escaped uh, or, or fled Appomattox. He wrote in a letter shortly after that that he refused to attend the funeral at Appomattox. He then made his way across Georgia, finally ending up with some distant relatives in Mississippi, where he finally uh, gave up the idea of of the Confederacy uh, uh, continuing to fight. He abandoned the cause, and he said that 
uh, as he wrote this letter from Mississippi, that uh, the days just sort of bled together, and that when he couldn't even really think about the loss or about the, about the war, uh, that it was just so overwhelming to him. And you know, I, I just I think it's important to hear pause here for a moment. I, I talked to a lot of groups about the lost cause, and as you probably know, it is sometimes a very tough sell especially when you're below the Mason-Dixon line. People are very touchy, uh, and understandably so, because I don't think we're often very respectful of people's diverse past. But Chamberlain gives us great insights into the uniqueness of Southern history that the great C. Van Woodward wrote so poignantly about, uh, that we need to remember that for white Southerners to come to terms with wholesale military defeat, uh, again, how overwhelming that was how it's impossible for them to conceptualize what was happening around them, that their world was destroyed. So the source material in that, again, that media post-war period is, is very thin. But what is amazing to me, the beginning in 1867, that a man like John Warwick Daniel, John Warwick Daniel, who had served on the staff of Jubal Early, I know many of your listeners are familiar with Jubal Early, who was an absolutely unreconstructed rebel, but what did John Ward Daniel do? Spoke to a group of women at Manassas at a Confederate cemetery and told them to forget about the past, that it was time to move forward and to rebuild Virginia. And what we see with men like John Warwick Daniel is that their vision for Virginia after Appomattox was a vision that they, in fact, had articulated before Fort Sumter. It was a vision they wanted in the 1850s. It was a vision of economic diversity, light, or light manufacturing, railroads. They wanted all the trappings of progress. They wanted it before the Civil War. They wanted to, in fact, they wanted that after the Civil War. And so that really is, I think, central to the continuity, uh, intellectual continuity of these men before the Civil War, and, and, and after the Civil War. The Civil War did not awaken them to the possibilities of industrialization. A number of scholars have, have in fact, argued that, that Confederate soldiers in facing these Union armies that were so well-equipped that they saw that they were at such a disadvantage because they didn't have the industrial might that the North had. Yeah, of course they saw that, but they actually, in fact, saw that before, before Fort Sumter. So uh, what's critical after the war is this vision it was continuous with what they had wanted during the antebellum period. The one component of their their whole vision of society also would be uh, a racial hierarchy. Uh, they 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 give up slavery, but they don't give up the notion of white supremacy. They don't uh, at all. And I think that what's again intriguing is someone like John Hampton Chamberlain, who after the war speaks publicly about. Slavery and the ill effects that it had, not, of course, on African Americans, but the ill effects it had on Southern society. So after the war, many of them speak very freely about now with the demise of slavery that this is a society that's unfettered for intellectual and economic development. Their desire to stay on top of the, of the, of the hierarchy of that society racially, is, is, there's ample evidence about that, but... That determination to have a society differentiated along racial lines was part of their determination to have a society that 
differentiated along class lines. I think it is one of the great mistakes that we make looking at Reconstruction in the post-war South and defining it along racial lines exclusively because there were intense battles, particularly in Virginia, among white folks. And so it, the determination that white people had to keep black people at the bottom of the, uh, uh, of the social hierarchy, true. But in fact, uh, there was a great deal of struggle and infighting among white people uh, because for the last generation they believed that there were only certain white people who should be in control of their society. They didn't believe in equality for all white people. They believed fundamentally that hierarchy was good, just, and right. Well, there's, I, I want to say Eric Foner, but others have argued that the, the elite, the, the, the redeemer of urban governments in the South, uh, initially allied themselves to some extent with the freedmen uh, as an ally within, to, to help them in this, this uh, white class struggle. And you're exactly right. And in, in Virginia, you have the Redeemer movement uh, that is, in fact, fighting uh, Mahone, former Governor William Mahone, or former General William Mahone, and the Readjuster movement. And the Readjuster movement within Virginia was based upon an alliance of African Americans, of free people, and some poor whites. That's why Jubal Early hated Mahone. That's why so many other ex-Confederate officers hated Mahone. They hated Mahone because... He, in fact, was bringing together what was the reality of their worst nightmare, and that is a an alliance between black and white folks uh, in the at, South. At the, and so, well, an alliance at, at the bottom of the pile, what, what the exactly. populists initially tried right. to do. Exactly. That's and exactly if, if right. you, you you try to defuse that if you're at the top by allying the the white elite with the the, the former slaves right. in, against in the middle the the large class of white middling and poor farmers. That's exactly right. And, and, your, and your point, I think, speaks to the fluidity of the Reconstruction period that often, and particularly my students, they see the segregation uh, and disfranchisement of the late 19th century, early 20th century, they see that as inevitable or in fact, often they think that that's immediately what happened after Appomattox. And in fact, that wasn't the case at all. It was a society up for grabs. And there was the political contestations that occurred after 1865 that we often forget because we think about the, the end result, and the end result was segregation and disfranchisement. But things were really up for grabs uh, for much of uh, the 1860, late 1860s and 1870s. I have a couple of questions I, I don't want to let you go without asking. Uh, one is you mentioned a new project. Uh, what are you working on now? So I have two projects. The, the first that I'm really focusing most of my efforts on, uh, it's called The War for the Common Soldier. It is part of the Littlefield series that's going to be published by the University of North Carolina for the Cisco Centennial. Uh, it is a book that is intended to be in part synthesis, uh, but also to offer some new interpretations through a comparative framework of northern and southern soldiers. Some of the things I mentioned before uh, is what's really shaping my thinking right now about how to approach this subject, because I think that m much of this, of this area has been mapped out by scholars, but I'm thinking that if we approach this differently, uh, methodologically, if we bring a, a different uh, approach, I think that we can raise some fresh interpretations. So that's where I spend most of my efforts. But I also have another project uh, that looks at the experience of Confederate slaves. And uh, as many of your listeners know, 
it's a very hotly debated, contested issue about the Confederate slave, the slave who served in the Confederate Army as a body servant or as someone who shouldered a musket. Uh, and it is an issue that is obscured, I think, because people want to say, okay, there are this many slaves who were in the Confederate Army and were loyal to their masters, or there were this many black Confederates who shouldered a musket. And to be honest with you, I could care less about the numbers because the reality is these men were slaves. And that's what gets lost in all of this. <laughs> the issue of choice is simply sort of lack of volunteerism. Yeah. What's that? No, a lack of volunteerism on the right. part of the Right, exactly. But what is interesting to me is that there was emotional intimacy between these Confederate, mostly officers, and their camp servants. And this emotional intimacy, I'm not trying to suggest, meant equality. It was, in fact, an unequal relationship. But it was a relationship in which the slave did enjoy some leverage. And so there is a power exchange there that is very interesting to me. And I want to focus on that power exchange during the war as part of a broader study to look at the relationship between black men and their white owners before the war. We have a lot of studies on the plantation mistress and their female slaves. I can't think of a single book that looks at the relationship between white masters and their male slaves. And so that's my secondary project, and I I spend some time on that, but not as much uh, as I do on the soldier book. It, it sounds good. It, it, it puts me in mind of uh, Charles Dew's book about uh, slave uh, iron workers, yes, yes, which yes. shows the surprising degree of economic autonomy that some yes. slaves had. But what I remember about it and what the challenge I think you're going to be facing is how he had to bend over backwards uh, every other page to say, I'm not saying they had any freedom. Right. Uh, just because they right. had some economic right. autonomy, I'm not excusing it. I'm not excusing it. I'm not excusing it. Exactly. And I, you know, let's hope that I don't do that. That uh, that I'll say it in the introduction, and that the reader will just have to. Well, but you uh, got to say it enough times to to. to it, it's a tough call. I mean, it's a, it's it a is. Tough line it, to, I mean, a good example is in the Army. Dorsey Pender. He's got a wonderful set of letters that have been published. Uh, he had a camp servant that he allowed the camp servant in the Army to basically rid himself out to do laundry and 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 in fact this camp servant earned a tremendous amount of money he made so much money that this camp servant purchased a imported french shirt a shirt made in france from a sutler <laughs> and got a, an entire new uniform and was sort of prancing about in camp and dorsey pender of course was just horrified that this slave of his was in finery that was probably better than most of these confederate soldiers and Pender thought it was somewhat humorous, but here's the key. It's not what this man was wearing, this slave. It's not what he was wearing, French finery. What's important is that he had the autonomy and the ability to do that, and there were social implications to that, and that's, that's what I want to store, want to explore those implications. Well, that sounds fascinating, and we're unfortunately out of time. I, I'd hope to ask you about uh, your brief but no doubt exciting tenure at the, uh, the Lincoln uh, Summer Home in uh, Washington. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. Um, But I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I will now actually go back and read the whole book. (laughs) And I urge our listeners to do the same. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Jerry, for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Yeah.